Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and today I'm coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 29th day of July 2014, and this is Film Literature and the New World Order, that monthly series where we discuss a book or movie and what it has to do with the society and the culture that we're living in. Unfortunately, as people may know, uh, I have been on hiatus for about a week and a half now because of my computer difficulties. My computer gave up the ghost, and as I noted to Brock West on Twitter recently, uh, some people say I work like a machine. Apparently, I work harder than a machine because if anyone should have burnt out after the creation of my Federal Reserve documentary, it should have been me, but as it turns out, it was my computer. Well, that is all fixed, and we are back up and online, and so media will continue spilling forth from the Corbett Report website. So if you're not signed up for the RSS feeds or for the email update on it, so you can find out every time the website is updated, I suggest you do so, as I'm sure a lot more media will be coming forth in the coming days and weeks. So thank you for bearing with me during that uh, hiatus, and that's why this is not coming to you on the third Monday of the month as usual, but the fifth Tuesday of the month, which just doesn't even make any sense. So there you are. And with that out of the way, let's get straight into today's conversation. In fact, it was slated to be a conversation with a guest, as we usually do here on Film Literature in the New World Order, about the book in question. Today's book, of course, being B.F. Skinner's Walden 2. And unfortunately, uh, there's been a number of things that have prevented us from getting this podcast made, which include not only the aforementioned computer difficulties, but the fact that the person that I had lined up for the conversation about this book seems to have disappeared from the face of the planet, and I haven't been able to contact him for a month or two now, despite having confirmed that we were slated for this conversation as much as three months ago. So I don't know what happened there. I will press on by myself regardless, and you'll have to make do with my sad monotone delivery for the next half hour or so as we delve into the depths of this book. We are, of course, as I say, talking about B.F. Skinner's Walden 2, so I hope you have read it already, and if you have not, please pause this podcast and read the book. And once you're done with that and have resumed play, we will start getting Getting into this this novel, a very interesting novel, of course, written by B.F. Skinner, Burris Frederick Skinner, and we'll just take the basic biography from the Bastion of Truthius, Truthiness Wikipedia on B.F. Skinner. Um, Burris Frederick Skinner was an American psychologist, behaviorist, author, inventor, and social philosopher. He was the Edgar Pierce Professor of Psychology at Harvard University from 1958 until his retirement in 1974. Skinner invented the operant conditioning chamber, also known as the Skinner Box. He was a firm believer of the idea that human free will was actually an illusion, and any human action was the result of the consequences of that same action. If the consequences were bad, there was a high chance that the action would not be repeated. However, if the consequences were good, the actions that led to it would be reinforced. He called this the principle of reinforcement. He innovated his own philosophy of science called radical behaviorism, and founded his own school of experimental research psychology, the experimental analysis of behavior, coining the, two, coining the term operant conditioning. His analysis of human behavior culminated in his work Verbal Behavior, as well as his philosophical manifesto Walden II, both of which have recently seen enormous increase in interest experimentally and in applied settings. Contemporary academia considers Skinner a pioneer of modern behaviorism, 
along with John P. Watson and Ivan Pavlov. Skinner discovered and advanced the rate of response as a dependent variable in psychological research. He invented the cumulative recorder to measure rate of responding as part of the highly influential work on schedules of reinforcement. And in a June 2002 survey, Skinner was listed as the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. He was a prolific author who published 21 books and 180 articles. And of course, today we're going to be talking specifically about one of those books, specifically Walden II, a utopian novel that B.F. Skinner penned in 1948. So well towards the beginning of his career, uh, even before he became a professor of psychology at Harvard. And so in order to start off this conversation, why don't we talk a little bit about this, uh, the book and its reaction to it. And we'll start by examining a clip from a interview that was conducted in 1964 by Dr. Richard I. Evans, a professor of psychology at the University of Houston, who interviewed Professor Skinner at that time about Walden II and the public's, well, very interesting reaction to it. Perhaps one of the most uh, interesting and at once controversial novels we've had in recent history, certainly written by a psychologist, is your novel Walden II. And uh, certainly uh, some people have say that you're discussing here a utopia. Uh, some people have argued that uh, you're doing something here that is uh, quite, uh, well, what should we say, rather uh, distressing to the humanist yes. and so on. And uh, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit uh, about uh, Walden II. That is essentially, uh, what, what are you talking about here? What, what kind of society are you trying to describe here? Well, I wrote the book quite seriously. I, um, it's not a dystopia, it is a utopia. Um, I thought it was possible at the time I wrote, and I think it is, is so today, for a group of people, well-meaning people, to get together and organize their lives by cutting down some of the things they normally consume, to, all, to cut down in turn uh, the uh, aversive labors required of them, to organize their uh, social environment in such a way that, uh, that they make more contacts of a satisfactory nature, to organize a school system in which children are educated for the life they're going to lead, uh, organize the economic system so that uh, it's, uh, if you do have to work, you at least work under pleasant conditions and so on. I think that could be done. I, I think it's quite a, a feasible possibility. And I describe this in, in, uh, in my book. But the reaction to it was, was violent. Uh, Life magazine called it such a triumph of Mort Main or the dead hand as had not been envisaged since the days of Sparta. <laughs> Joseph Wood Crooch has not only wrote half a book attacking uh, Walden too, but has returned to the attack by many occasions. And I've, I've asked myself you know, what this is all about, what's eating these people. Why is this life so horrible? And that apparently the only point uh, is that it has been planned by someone. Uh, if Joseph Wood Crooch uh, climbed up on a mesa down in New Mexico where he now lives one of these days and came across a, a small civilization living the life described in Walden II, I'm sure that he would uh, come down out of the hills saying, what fools we are, here's the perfect life until someone said to him, but there was an old Indian named Frazier who designed this <laughs> world, and that would kill it all. Um, the fact that um, this is not 
the product of a series of accidents and a cultural evolution, but is designed means that someone is in the position of a designer, therefore is in the position of, of a threatening despot. All right, once again, that was B.F. Skinner himself discussing the public's reaction and reception of his book, Walden II, which again was released in 1948 and has been in print and circulation ever since then and continues, I think, to draw much of the same type of ire and criticism and condemnation that it did at the time from a public that still finds a lot of the ideas presented in it to be quite radical. So if nothing else, I suppose that is a testament to the radical nature of the ideas presented therein that 60 years later they can still uh, provoke such ire and such a strong reaction of revulsion in the public. And I am going to lay my cards out here on the table and admit that I, too, find things to be very uncomfortable about with Walden 2 and the community presented in this novel, although it wasn't very easy for me once I put down the novel and started contemplating it to articulate exactly why I was so uneasy about it. And there are, I think, easy and and trite and simplistic ways of framing criticism of this book, but I'm not so interested in that kind of knee-jerk criticism that simply says, well, this isn't what I was brought up with, or this isn't what the way I'm used to think thinking, therefore it's wrong. I want to look at the real reasons why this book and what it presents is wrong and why behaviorism, as presented by Skinner, is uh, is not only a blind alley, but a dangerous blind alley that has led many a people, as- many people astray. And in order to get from here to there, why don't I go through some of my reactions to some of the passages I- in here that that made me uncomfortable? And we'll start by just taking a look at some of the passages that I, in fact, found various points of accord with, things that I couldn't necessarily really dismiss, and some that I even agreed with. And we'll start by talking uh, a little bit about a passage from the beginning of chapter 14, where Fraser, the founder of this Walden II utopian community presented in the novel, is starting to explain this uh, community to uh, Professor Burris, the, the narrator of the novel, and some of his compatriots that have gone to visit this this Walden II, this, this community. And uh, Fraser is explaining, uh, for example, uh, considering how long society has been at it, you'd expect a better job of coordinating psycho- uh, the society. But the campaigns have been badly planned, and the victory has never been secure. The behavior of the individual has been shaped according to revelations of good conduct, never as the result of experimental study. But why not experiment? The questions are simple enough. What's the best behavior for the individual so far as the group is concerned? And how can the individual be induced to behave in that way? Why not explore these questions in a scientific spirit? Now, again, there are certain knee-jerk reactions that I, myself, and I'm sure many in the audience who follow my work will have to that sentiment, but at the very least, it is a real question that I think deserves a real answer. Why not explore these questions in a scientific spirit? What would we be afraid of in actually applying the scientific method to these questions of what behavior should or could or uh, be induced and how it could be induced in the public in order to achieve a happier result, a more balanced society, or however you want to frame it. Now, again, there are a number of things to say about the way that that question itself is framed, but the the, the heart of the question, why should we not explore these questions in a scientific manner, I think is an important one to at least 
entertain in a serious manner. And uh, let's look at some of the ideas in that are presented in this community, this imaginary community that's presented in the novel that I have at least some points of accord with. Uh, for example, explaining the ways that the children in this community are educated. Uh, it, Fraser says, for example, on page 110 of my edition of this book, which is the, let me see here, it is the 19, no, sorry, the 2005 printing of the Hackett Publishing Company edition of this book. So I'm on page 110 if you're following along at home. Fraser is explaining the education of the children, and he says, Since our children remain happy, energetic, and curious, we don't need to teach subjects at all. We teach only the techniques of learning and thinking. As for geography, literature, the sciences, we give our children opportunity and guidance, and they learn them for themselves. In that way, we dispense with half the teachers required under the old system, and the education is incomparably better. Our children aren't neglected, but they're seldom, if ever, taught anything. End quote. And I think people will know if they've listened to some of my work on the idea of education and how our conception of education could be changed or amended to actually take into account the children themselves and how to learn rather than simply trying to stuff their head with meaningless facts, I think that's actually uh, uh, something that I could get behind. It, it certainly more resembles my idea of what education could be than our current system of government-sponsored pro propaganda programming and indoctrination. Uh, or, for example, some of the ideas presented about government and the role of voting in society, de a democratic society, I think are, again, at least somewhat in tune with some of my expressed beliefs in uh, the, the anarchistic principles, although... Uh, as Fraser goes on to explain, Walden II is explicitly not anarchistic in nature, it's just a different form of government, but at least some of the criticisms that are leveled at democracy, again, are things that I myself would uh, adhere to. Uh, for example, talking about the, the types of political action and, and forms of government that are advocated in Walden II, Fraser says, Government and politics. It's not a problem of government and politics at all. That's the first plank in the Walden II platform. You can't make progress toward the good life by political action. Not under any current form of government. You must operate upon another level entirely. What you need is a sort of non-political action committee. Keep out of politics and away from government except for practical and temporary purposes. It's not the place for men of goodwill or vision. End quote. Again, something that I... Again, I, I'm quite on board with uh, in that sentiment. And, of course, he goes on uh, to talk about the place of voting in this system of government and how voting is a device for blaming conditions on the people. And he says, The people aren't rulers, they're scapegoats, and they file to the polls every so often to renew their right to the title. The title of scapegoat. I think that's a remarkably concise and very, very insightful way of putting it, and my concerns about the democratic process in general, that basically the people are being forced to sign on mentally and in terms of identification with the rulers who then rule over them in whatever way they see fit, and that can all be blamed on the people, because after all, the people pushed the, the levers in the voting booth to vote for this candidate or that, this pre-selected candidate or that. So again, I think some of the criticisms that are leveled at the current society's uh, form of government, the, the democratic institutions which we're supposed to revere, I, I think, again, I'm quite on board with. And there was actually a very, very interesting point made in this book through the, uh, again, through Fraser's explication of the Walden II community, this utopian community in which people only work four hours a day and everyone shares in the, the, the fruits of that labor and, and everyone seems so happy and carefree. Uh, there's another point which actually really made me think about my own 
preconceptions and perhaps misconceptions about what a ideal form of society would look like. Let's just read, again, this is Fraser talking to Mr. Castle, Professor Burris's friend and uh, colleague uh, from the university who's come to take a look at this utopian community. He says, the difference between us, Mr. Castle, is greater than I supposed, said Fraser. We not only have use for these people, the people who... Uh, who basically just muddled their way through lives rather than striving after great works. We not only have use for these people, we have respect. Most people do live from day to day, or if they have any long-term time plan, it's a little more than anticipation of some natural course. They look forward to having children, to seeing the children grow up, and so on. The majority of people don't want to plan. They want to be free of the responsibility of planning. What they ask is merely some assurance that they will be decently provided for. The rest is a day-to-day -day enjoyment of life. That, that's the explanation of your father divines. People naturally flock to anyone they can trust for the necessities of life, end quote. Now, that is, uh, I think, a very important point, and one that, to be fair, I'm not sure I have given the shrift necessary in my own evaluation of what an ideal society would look like, because I often talk about the de devolution of these institutions that are naturally headed towards greater and greater centralization, greater and greater control over our lives. I always want that to devolve down back as close to the individual level as possible, ultimately with the ideal being each individual responsible for their own life, which of course not only means that they get to reap the fruits and rewards of a life in which they take total control, but also the responsibilities of that life. And that can be a huge burden, I understand. It is a huge burden to think about that there's no ever-loving government safety net for which, for whatever, to whatever extent that is overblown and in fact uh, inversion, an inversion of reality, there are certain benefits to living in a society like that where we can turn certain parts of our brain off and just entrust it to the society at large. And of course, that is a real motivation for a lot of people. And why would I denigrate people who simply do have that that desire to just go about their own life, their own little life, and then maybe raise their family in, in peace and quiet and not have to worry about these these issues of how to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. That is a very important thing and, and something that I reconsidered and, and, and was really brought back to the fore in terms of my own analysis of what an ideal society would look like through the reading of this book. So as I say, in this book, there are several ideas presented of which I have a, a natural affinity or accord and others which I think were very effective presentations of questions that need to be examined. For example, why shouldn't we look at the best way to organize society from a scientific perspective? Again, I have um, my, uh, well, I have an answer to that that we'll come to in good and due course throughout this podcast. But, but still, I, those are real questions and real issues that I think are fairly presented in this book and that's why I think this, I was glad that I read this book um, for the purposes of, of doing this podcast. And uh, I, I think there's a lot to get out of it. So again, I certainly hope that you've read this book in preparation for this podcast as well. And uh, as far as a book, a novel written by a psychologist, I must say it's remarkably well-written from that perspective. Not only is it not clunky in, in terms of the, the prose and the way that it flows, it, it, it reads quite well, but also just the, uh, the, the standard framing of this utopian narrative. Like so many utopian narratives that have, follow, uh, that have preceded it, all the way back uh, to Sir Thomas More's Utopia and, and Erewhon, which they talk about here, and, and even Aldous Huxley's Island, which of course came out 10 years after this book, but, uh, but still follows that that same idea. It, it follows the standard 
convention of which there is a utopian community somewhere. And of course, you have to have characters from outside of that system going into that system to take a look at it as outsiders so that you can have the, the process of explication of the, the community. And it doesn't it isn't tiresome. It isn't tedious. I think it's it reads quite well as a novel. So um, there's a lot of reasons that I think this is an interesting book and one that deserves reading. But as I say, I think there are some very, very, very serious and troubling concerns about the issues raised in this book, and we really should start getting into that. So let's take a look at where, uh, at the very least, my, my initial reaction before I had a chance to really formulate my response to this book, the, the, the sorts of passages that made me very uncomfortable. And we can take a look, for example, in my edition of the book, page 126, uh, just at the very end of chapter 16, where, again, they're talking about the, uh, the family structure. And, uh, and uh, Professor Burris asks Fraser, are you conducting any genetic experiments? I said, no, said Fraser, but he sat straight up as if the subject were especially interesting. We discourage childbearing by the unfit, of course, but that's all. You must remember that we've only recently reached our present size, and even so, we aren't large enough for serious experimenta- experimentation. Later, perhaps, something can be done. The weakening of the family structure will make experimental breeding possible. Fraser smiled quietly. I've been waiting for that one, said Castle explosively. What about the weakening of the family structure, Mr. Fraser? The all-absorbing concern of the outside world, he said, is what happens to the family in Walden too. The family is the frailest of modern institutions. Its weakness is evident to everyone. Will it survive as the culture changes? We, we watch it with all the panic which besets a mother as her backward child steps to the platform and begins to speak a piece. Well, a great deal happens to the family in Walden too, Mr. Castle. I can tell you that. End quote. And, of course, that theme is continued into Chapter 17, where it is noted, for example, that Professor Burris asks Fraser, What about the children, I said? The group care we saw this morning must also weaken the relation between parent and child. It does, by design. We have to attenuate the child-parent relation for several reasons. Group care is better than parental care. In the old pre-scientific days, the early education of the child could be left to the parents, and indeed almost certainly had to be left to them. But with the rise of a science of behavior, all is changed. The bad repute into which scientific childcare has fallen is no reflection upon our technical knowledge of what should be done. The requirements of good childcare are well established. Where we have failed is in getting good care in the average home. And eventually he goes on to say, the hereditary condition will be minimized to the point of being forgotten. Long before that, it will be possible to breed through artificial insemination without altering the personal relation of husband and wife, end quote. So this book very much brings to the fore something that curiously comes up again and again and again in every one of these utopian uh, narratives going back literally centuries. Uh, You can go and read Sir Thomas More's Utopia. You can read, as we did recently, Aldous Huxley's Island. You can read B.F. Skinner's Walden 2. In every one of these proposed utopian communities, they are obsessed with this, with breaking apart the family unit, of getting uh, parents and children apart from one another. In fact, Fraser at one point brags that new parents get to see their infants for a few minutes every day, at least. Oh, wow, a few minutes every day. Wow, what a what a wonderful parent-child bond must form there. And it is a strange fact, but it is a fact nonetheless that. 
people who are lusting after the societal control over the individual continue to push this idea that we must break this parent-child bond that is one of the most natural, fundamental, instinctual parts of human nature. We must break this bond at all costs so that we can collectivize childcare and, and thus make it more efficient. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. Well, for those who might have not caught that the first time around, that was Melissa Harris-Perry of MSNBC from just last year advocating once again this very idea that we must get get past this notion that, that people own their children, that they should have some sort of special care or responsibility over their children. No, it's a communal thing. Thus, the community should have a great amount of control over your children and how they are educated. That way we can make better investments. And it is interesting, the language and the the types of things that they appeal to in order to get this idea across, or at least to put it on the table. And to be fair, I think Melissa Harris-Perry is basically hired to say some of these outrageous things that uh, will generate a lot of concern in the uh, the right-leaning media, and I think for the right reasons. But again, I think that just plays into the media echo chamber, and is just part of the dialectic that introduces these ideas so that they can be bandied about, and eventually we can steer society towards them, so I don't want to give her any particular undue credit for this idea, especially because it's an idea that, as I say, has been advocated literally for centuries by utopians of various stripes, including B.F. Skinner. Now, there is a tendency to go very far towards a certain end of the spectrum with criticism of Skinner in this regards, and that is to talk about his own parenting and his own use of his own daughter as a type of lab rat or perhaps lab pigeon, because of course, B.F. Skinner and his Skinner box of behavioral conditioning is most closely associated with pigeons who he worked with almost obsessively throughout his career and uh, got to train them to do various things. He could train them to to make a counterclockwise circle, for example, simply by, by reinforcing their behaviors with positive reinforcement like food, etc. And, and uh, again, there are videos of this online. I've mentioned it on a few of my uh, podcasts in the past, so uh, there are links. I'll put some links in the show notes so you can go and take a look at these Skinner boxes and how they work. But there are some interesting rumors and things that have floated around about his own daughter, Deborah Skinner Buzan, who was, the, uh, the of course, the daughter of B.F. Skinner and who uh, spent her first year or two in a special air crib that was designed by Skinner as an efficient way of handling the childcare, and it was a type of, uh, I think, a, a specially sealed environment that was uh, that was temperature controlled, and she was basically uh, she didn't need clothing or things of that sort for most of uh, her early infant upbringing. And there's been a lot of rumors floated around about the weird kinds of experiments that he would uh, conduct on his daughter, but uh, but I think that is not fair criticism because at at any rate, it is denied 100% and wholeheartedly by Deborah Skinner-Buzan herself, and I will include a link to a interesting Guardian article, I Was Not a Lab Rat, where she puts to rest some of the ideas that have floated around about the way she was used as some sort of experimental study 
subject by uh, Skinner. Um, she basically puts that to rest and to, uh, also, in the meantime, uh, denies that she ever committed suicide in a bowling alley in Billings, Montana, not least of which because she has never been to Billings, Montana. And of course, she's writing the very article in which she denies it. So, again, there have been a lot of things floated around about Skinner in the way that he used his own child, etc. And I think, again, that is misplaced criticism, but certainly taking a look at the ideas that he actually does, did, does or did advocate in his works, including Walden too, I think that's where we start to get into that creepy factor where it starts to become this obsession with with breaking apart the mother-child, the father-child bond. And as a father myself now, with father of a, a wonderful 15-month-old boy who I love more dearly than I could have ever imagined, the idea of seeing my son for a few minutes a day uh, in some sort of experimental air crib type device in some Walden 2 community is to me horrific. I mean, truly horrific. And it, it, it makes me cringe to think of such a, a society. But uh, again, well, what is cringing if it leads to a better society overall. So let's let's start to explore this idea and why it is so uncomfortable. And I think we can start to get, really get into the meat and potatoes of this when we start to look at the underlying uh, assumptions and the underlying ideas of this operant conditioning behaviorist view of human uh, nature. And so basically, I don't want to do this a disservice by merely bringing in the entirety of B.F. Skinner's life and work and research without giving it due credit, but uh, we don't really have time to get into the nuances of it all. So I will direct you to some interesting interviews where Skinner talks about his work and what's behind it and the idea of behaviorism. But I suppose the one-minute inadequate synopsis would be to say that Skinner, of course, devoted his life to examining the ways that certain types of behaviors could be reinforced and induced in test subjects, as I say, mostly lab pigeons, but lab rats and other types of animals besides, as well as, as Skinner asserted many times, as well as humans, the way certain types of uh, behaviors can be induced, uh, actually made to happen, simply by giving certain types of reinforcements. And in this case, of course, for example, in the case of the pigeons, uh, very hungry pigeons were induced to do certain actions uh, by giving them rewards, positive reinforcers uh, in, in the form of food pellets, which they could then eat. And that would reinforce certain types of behavior. And the fact that they did not receive the, those uh, the, those positive reinforcers when they made other types of uh, behaviors that were not being sought after, that would uh, negatively enforce that that behavior, which did not cause the uh, the food to appear. So basically, the idea is that uh, in a similar manner, uh, human beings too can be made to behave in certain ways simply by giving certain positive reinforcements for certain behaviors and uh, and withholding those reinforcements when certain other behaviors are displayed. That's basically the gist of this radical behaviorism, which is. Interesting because of a lot of the, uh, the the fundamental underlying assumptions of this 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 way of looking at humanity, and they start again. They start to come out in the book in various ways, including I think one of the uh, the very the very bold proclamations that Skinner is well uh, associated with because of some of his uh, writings. Uh, which was phrased in uh, by Fraser himself in this in this narrative, the uh, the the person who created this Walden Two community. Uh, in this book, uh, uh, Castle again, um, Professor Burris's colleague, the person who's most most head on challenging uh, uh, Fraser and the the Walden Two community, says, "Isn't it time we talked about freedom?" 
Oh, sorry, this is Professor Burris, not Castle. He says, isn't it time we talked about freedom, I said? We parted a day or so ago on an agreement to let the question of freedom ring. It's time to answer, don't you think? My answer is simple enough, said Fraser. I deny that freedom exists at all. I must deny it, or my program would be absurd. You can't have a science about a subject matter which hops capriciously about. Perhaps we can never prove that man isn't free. It's an assumption. But the increasing success of a science of behavior makes it more and more plausible. On the contrary, a simple personal experience makes it untenable, said Castle. The experience of freedom. I know that I'm free. It must be quite consoling, said Fraser. And what's more, you do too, said Castle hotly. When you deny your own freedom for the sake of playing with a science of behavior, you're acting in plain bad faith. That's the only way I can explain it. He tried to recover himself and shrugged his shoulders. At least you'll grant that you feel free. The feeling of freedom should deceive no one, said Fraser. Give me a concrete case. Well, right now, Castle said. He picked up a book of matches. I'm free to hold or drop these matches. You will, of course, do one or the other, said Fraser. Linguistically or logically, there seem to be two possibilities, but I submit that there's only one in fact. The determining forces may be subtle, but they are inexorable. I suggest that as an orderly person, you will probably hold... Ah, uh, you drop them. Well, you see, that's all part of your behavior with respect to me. You couldn't resist the temptation to prove me wrong. It was all lawful. You had no choice. The deciding factor entered rather late, and naturally you couldn't foresee the result when you first held them up. There was no strong likelihood that you would act in either direction, and so you said you were free. End quote. Well, this is, I think, where we start to get into the real meat and potatoes of the underlying assumptions of the radical behaviorism promoted by Skinner and which formed the basis for this utopian Walden II community where everyone is so wonderfully happy in their four hours of labor a day. And this, of course, is one of the overriding concerns of Skinner's work and something that he was confronted on repeatedly throughout his career. Let's turn once again to that interview that we started today's podcast with of B.F. Skinner, where he talks directly about this problem of free will versus determinism. Now, I am bothered at times when people charge this kind of an analysis with uh, uh, various ignominious shortcomings that somehow or other I am... Uh, uh, reducing the dignity or nobility of man. No analysis changes man. He's what he is. Uh, I think this view is an optimistic one. I think uh, man can uh, control his future even though we assume that he is wholly determined. Uh, it does not, because science, supposing science establishes with reasonable plausibility, and of course this can never be proved, but supposing science makes it pretty plausible that human behavior is entirely determined and you might say, well, why should man do anything? And this is one of those transitional things from, mm -hmm. from one philosophy to another. But even though it is true, if it is true, that man is entirely controlled by his environment, man is always changing the environment. And he builds the world in which his behavior has certain kinds of characteristics. And he does this because the changes are reinforcing to him. And a very important part of that control of the environment seems to me to be concerned with self-control. Man builds a world in which he behaves effectively. 
He builds a world in which he suffers uh, fewer aversive stimuli. He avoids extremes of temperature. He mm -hmm. preserves food so he doesn't go hungry and so on. That's easy to account for. But he also builds a world in which he is more likely to get on with his fellow men, in which he's more likely to educate himself so that he'll be more effective in the future and so on. Over a period of thousands of years, you can see, if you want to argue from history, uh, that there has been an accumulation of behavioral techniques which have improved the effectiveness of human behavior. Uh, man controls himself, but he controls it by controlling his environment. And this is quite possible in a determined system. Uh, now we start to get to the real meat and potatoes of the issue. Here we start to understand what is really behind this science of behaviorism that Skinner is promoting, and it is a fundamental assumption about the nature of the universe, about the nature of humankind itself, that really, ultimately, we are determined beings, that their free will is an illusion, and it is only uh, an illusion that we may feel, we may experience that feeling of freedom, but of course we are determined by a number of factors that play into uh, the way that we behave, so that ultimately what matters is not what we actually think feel, believe, the way we process information, what we do with that in our heads, the only thing that matters is the end result, the behavior that results from all of those factors. And that if we can actually manipulate the conditions under which decisions are made, we can actually determine the behavior that, uh, that will result. And that is a science, a technique that can be refined and improved, and at this stage may be crude and, and not at all determinative, but the end result, the ideal, would be that a society in which everything is so conditioned that we can actually determine the outcome of the people that are living within that society. And, of course, this is well articulated by Fraser towards the end of Walden 2, where he launches into a spiel very much about the, this issue, where he says, What remains to be done, he said, his eyes flashing? Well, what do you say to the design of personalities? Would that interest you? The control of temperament. Give me the specifications and I'll give you the man. What do you say to the control of motivation, building the interests which will make men most productive and most successful? Does that seem to you fantastic? Yet some of the techniques are available, and more can be worked out experimentally. Think of the possibilities. A society in which there is no failure, no boredom, no duplication of effort. And what about the cultivation of special abilities? Do we know anything about the circumstances in the life of the child which give, give him a mathematical mind? Or make him musical? Almost nothing at all. These things are left to accident or blamed on heredity. I take a more optimistic view. We can analyze effective behavior and design experiments to discover how to generate it in our youth. Oh, our efforts will seem pretty crude a hundred years hence. They may seem crude now to the expansive soul. But we've got to make a start. There's no virtue in accident. Let us control the lives of our children and see what we can make of them. Frazier began to pace back and forth, his hands still thrust in his pockets. My hunch is, and when I feel this way about a hunch, it's never wrong, that we shall eventually find out not only what makes a child mathematical, but how to make better mathematicians. If we can't solve a problem, we can create men who can, and better artists, and better craftsmen, he laughed and added quietly, and better behaviorists, I suppose. End quote. 
So this is really the ultimate ideal of the Walden 2 community and what it is ultimately striving for, not just the creation of a society in which people are pleasant and happy and uh, productive and living in a type of harmonious uh, state with the, the people around them, but ultimately to actually really start to engineer people on an individual level so that each one can be slotted into a certain role that they could then usefully partake in and enjoy as a productive member of this future planned society. Now, this, I hope, at any rate, I, I'm not going out on a limb to say, is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And, of course, the question that Skinner would pose and did pose throughout his career is, well, why? Why is this uncomfortable? So we have a wonderful society in which people are... Absolutely 100% slotted into the place that they, they fit in that society and they're happy to be there and they're, they're good at what they do. They enjoy what they do. Uh, they, they all contribute and they all t uh, take the rewards of that, those contributions. No one is, is out of place in this society. It sounds like a wonderful idea. Why would you be opposed to this? Well, there are at least two answers to this, and uh, I, I, I think one is going to be satisfying for the very practical people who have consequentialist-type arguments and want to know why something will work or not work in reality, and then the other for people uh, more of my own philosophical bent who want to know the ethical reasons why this is insupportable. And in fact, we can find the answers to both of these with regards to the Skinnerian question of why we should reject the Skinnerian behavioral science. We can find the answers to both of those uh, types both of those types of answers to this question from a absolutely indispensable article from none other than renowned gatekeeper who I've mentioned many times in the past, Noam Chomsky, who wrote in the New York Review of Books, The Case Against B.F. Skinner back in December 1971. I will link this up in the show notes. And as I've said many times before, just because Chomsky is undoubtedly a gatekeeper on, when it comes to the JFK assassination or 9-11 or the Federal Reserve, it does not mean that all of his work is, uh, is useless. And I will certainly 100% completely implore you to go and read this particular essay, which I think does an exceptionally good job of destroying the Skinnerian model of human behavior uh, for, with using Skinner's own words, indicting him with his own words, which is always the most effective way to do this. I would dare say this article is 100% absolutely a model of the way that people should attack these types of arguments by taking them head on and using the own, uh, their own words to, to show the ludicrousness of the position. And it's one of those articles I wish I could read it in its entirety, um, just to read it into the record and make sure that we're all quite aware of it. But unfortunately, it is exceptionally long, and to do so would probably take an hour, if not more. So I will just leave it here for you to absolutely please do read this article, and we'll explore just a couple of sections of this that I hope get across the main points that I'm trying to make here. The first of which is that the Skinnerian view of uh, behaviorism as a scientific understanding of human nature is itself bunk. It is absolute bunk. It is not science. It is anti-scientific to its core, and the fact that Skinner will always frame criticism of his his ideas as, oh, these these uh, people who are afraid of science, these neo-Luddites who just can't, can't stand these scientific techniques that we're bringing to the field of behavioral uh, study, uh, they're, they're just afraid of science and progress. These these are, you know, backwards people who, who are afraid of science. That's the way, of course, he, he throughout his career defended his positions and defended his ideas, but as Chomsky does a beautiful job of pointing out and, and completely tearing apart his ideas in this article, he shows that his ideas are not only not 
not good science. They're not science at all. And uh, again, I'll just try to read a passage that I think is reflective of that. And, uh, and I hope, again, you will read the entire thing in its context to see how he really does undermine this idea that behavioral science as propounded by Skinner is science at all. But let's let's start getting into this. So quoting from The Case Against B.F. Skinner by Noam Chomsky, quote, a century ago, a voice of British liberalism described the Chinamen as an inferior race of malleable Orientals. During the same years, anthropology became professionalized as a, as a discipline, intimately associated with the rise of raciology. Presented with the claims of 19th century racist anthropology, a rational person will ask two sorts of questions. What is the scientific status of the claims? What social or ideological needs do they serve? The questions are logically independent, but the second type of question naturally comes to the fore as scientific pretensions are undermined. The question of the scientific status of 19th century racist anthropology is no longer seriously at issue, and its social function is not difficult to perceive. If the Chinaman is malleable by nature, then what objection can there be to controls exercised by a superior race? Consider now a generalized vision of the pseudoscience of the 19th century. It is not merely the heathen Chinese who are malleable by nature, but rather all people. Science has received that it is an illusion to speak of freedom and dignity. What a person does is fully determined by his genetic endowment and history of reinforcement. Therefore, we should make the use of the best behavioral technology to shape and control behavior in the common interest. Again, we may inquire into the exact meaning and scientific status of the claim and the social functions it serves. Again, if the scientific status is slight, then it is particularly interesting to consider the climate of opinion within which this claim is taken seriously. In his speculations on human behavior, which are to be clearly distinguished from his experimental investigations of conditioning behavior, B.F. Skinner offers a particular version of his theory of human malleability. The public reception of his work is a matter of some interest. Skinner has been condemned as a proponent of totalitarian thinking and lauded for his advocacy of a tightly managed social environment. He is accused of immorality and praised as a spokesman for science and rationality in human affairs. He appears to be attacking fundamental human values, demanding control in place of, and in place of the defense of freedom and dignity. There seems something scandalous in this, and since Skinner invokes the authority of science, some critics condemn science itself, or the scientific view of man, for supporting such conclusions while others assure us that science will win out over mysticism and irrational belief. A close analysis shows that this appearance is misleading. Skinner is saying nothing about freedom and dignity, though he uses the words freedom and dignity in several odd and idiosyncratic senses. His speculations are devoid of scientific content and do not even hint at general outlines of a possible science of human behavior. Furthermore, Skinner imposes certain arbitrary limitations on scientific research, which virtually guarantee continued failure. As to its social implications, Skinner's science of human behavior, being quite vacuous, is as congenial to the libertarian as to the fascist. If certain of his remarks suggest one or another interpretation, these, it must be stressed, do not follow from his science any more than their opposites do. I think it would be more accurate to regard Skinner's beyond freedom and dignity as a kind of Rorschach test. The fact that it is widely regarded as pointing the way to 1984 is, perhaps, a suggestive indication of certain tendencies in modern industrial society. There is little doubt that a theory of human malleability might be put to service the service of totalitarian doctrine. If, indeed, freedom and dignity are merely the relics of outdated mystical beliefs, then what objection can there be to narrow and effective controls instituted to ensure the survival of a culture? 
In view of the prestige of science and the tendencies towards centralized authoritarian control which can easily be detected in modern industrial society, it is important to investigate seriously the claim that the science of behavior and a related technology provide the rationale and means for control of behavior. What, in fact, has been demonstrated or even plausibly suggested in this regard? Skinner assures us repeatedly that his science of behavior is advancing mightily and that there exists an effective technology of control. It is, he claims, a fact that all control is exerted by the environment. Consequently, when we seem to turn control over to a person himself, we simply shift from one mode of control to another. The only serious task, then, is to divine less aversive and more effective controls. An engineering problem. Quote, The outlines of a technology are already clear. We have the physical, biological, and behavioral technologies needed to save ourselves. The problem is how to get people to use them, end quote. It is a fact, Skinner maintains, that, quote, behavior is shaped and maintained by its consequences, end quote, and that as the consequences contingent on behavior are investigated, more and more, quote, they are taking over the explanatory functions previously assigned to personalities, states of minds, feelings, traits of character, purposes, and intentions, end quote. As the science of behavior adopts the strategy of physics and biology, the autonomous agent to which behavior has traditionally been attributed is replaced by the environment, the environment in which the species involved and in which the behavior of the individual is shaped and maintained. A behavioral analysis is thus replacing the, quote, traditional appeal to states of mind, feelings, and other aspects of the autonomous man, and is in fact much further advanced than its critics usually realize, end quote. Human behavior is a function of conditions, environmental or genetic, and people should not object, quote, when a scientific analysis traces their behavior to external conditions, end quote, or when a behavioral technology improves the system of control. Not only has all of this been demonstrated, according to Skinner, but as the science of behavior progresses, it will inevitably more fully establish these facts. Quote, it is in the nature of scientific progress that the functions of autonomous man be taken over one by one as the role of the environment is better understood, end quote. This is the, quote, scientific view, and it is the nature of scientific inquiry, end quote, that the evidence should shift in its favor. Quote, it is in the nature of an experimental analysis of human behavior that it should strip away the functions previously assigned to autonomous man and transfer them one by one to the controlling environment, end quote. Furthermore, physiology someday, quote, will explain why behavior is indeed related to the antecedent events of which it can be shown to be a function, end quote. These claims fall into two categories. In the first are claims about what has been discovered. In the second, assertions about what science must discover in its inexorable progress. It is likely that the hope or fear or resignation induced by Skinner's proclamations results, in part, from his assertions that scientific progress will inevitably demonstrate both that all control is exerted by the environment and that the ability of autonomous man to choose is an illusion. Claims of the first sort must be evaluated according to the evidence presented for them. In the present instance, this is a simple task, since no evidence is presented, as will become clear when we turn to more specific examples. In fact, the, que the question of evidence is beside the point, since the claims dissolve into triviality or incoherence under analysis. Claims with regard to the inevitability of future discoveries are more Im ambiguous. Is Skinner saying that, as a matter of necessity, science will show that behavior is completely determined by the environment? If so, his claim can be dismissed as pure dogmatism, foreign to the nature of scientific inquiry. It is quite conceivable that as scientific understanding advances, it will, it will reveal that even with full details about genetic endowment and personal history, a Laplacian omniscience could predict very little about what an organism will do. 
It is even possible that science may someday provide principled reasons for this conclusion, if indeed it is true. But perhaps Skinner is suggesting merely that the term scientific understanding be restricted to the prediction of behavior from environmental conditions. If so, then science may reveal, as it progresses, that scientific understanding of human behavior, in this sense, is inherently limited. At the moment, we have virtually no scientific evidence and not even the germs of an interesting hypothesis about how human behavior is determined. Consequently, we can only express our hopes and guesses about what some future science may demonstrate. In any event, the claims that Skinner puts forth in this category are either dogmatic or uninteresting, depending on which interpretation we give to them. The dogmatic element in Skinner's thinking is further revealed when he states that the task of a scientific analysis is, quote, to explain how the behavior of a person as a physical system is related to the conditions under which the human species evolved and the conditions under which the individual lives, end quote. Surely the task of a scientific analysis is to discover the facts and explain them. Suppose that in fact the human brain operates by physical principles, perhaps not now unknown, that provide for free choice, appropriate to situations, but only marginally affected by environmental contingencies. The task of scientific analysis is not, as Skinner believes, to demonstrate that the conditions due to which he restricts his attention fully determine human behavior, but rather to discover whether in fact they do, or whether they are at all significant, a very different matter. If they do not, as seems plausible, the task of a scientific analysis will be to clarify the issues and discover an intelligible explanatory theory that will deal with the actual facts. Surely no scientist would follow Skinner in insisting on the a priori necessity that scientific investigation will lead to a particular conclusion specified in advance. End quote. All right, we'll leave the quotation from Chomsky's article there. And again, that's only a small slice of the beginning of the introduction of Chomsky's argument. So again, I will have to exhort you to go and read that article in, in itself as he starts to get into the more specific examples about how uh, Skinner is, uh, the, some of the ridiculous claims that he makes. And I think one that is particularly interesting comes to Skinner's ideas about verbal behavior and how we can understand humans' verbal behavior, not language, verbal behavior as being behavioral, behaviorally conditioned into us, that we are in fact uh, basically able to communicate with each other because of positive reinforcements that we receive when we start learning to communicate, um, when we start making ber verbal behavior, when we say da-da-da-da, then your daddy gets happy, so you do it again. And as Chomsky notes, I mean, to whatever extent you can explain certain types of conditioning through these processes, the idea that that verbal behavior itself, that language itself arises from conditioning of this sort is patently ridiculous. And an excellent example that Chomsky gives is that I myself, as an English speaker, am not infinitely, but very, very, very much more likely to produce a sentence of English that I have never heard before, a, a perfectly grammatically correct, perfectly understandable and intelligible sentence in English that I've never heard before and have no reason to have ever been uh, conditioned into saying before, than I will ever spontaneously come out with a grammatically correct and intelligible sentence in Chinese. Now, why is that? It's not because I have been conditioned into speaking that particular sentence in English, because it could even involve words that I have never used before, but I could still actually create such a sentence. In fact, I do create new sentences each and every single day that have nothing whatsoever to do with sentences that have been 
conditioned into me through prior behavior, and yet I have never in my life, and likely never will, produce a sentence in Chinese, uh, an intelligible, understandable, grammatically correct sentence in Chinese, because I don't know Chinese. But Skinner has no way of accounting for that in his his theory of verbal behavior and the, the, uh, how that arises. Again, this is a very, very nuanced subject, and I don't claim to have all of the scientific understanding uh, uh, at my disposal here. So I'll, I'll leave this for your own perusal on your own time, as I say. But as I say, I think that uh, it becomes quite apparent um, when you start to really look at, at the way that Skinner argues, the types of arguments he uses, that the way that he uses his language, um, what he even calls reinforcement, etc. All of these things are, are extremely slipshod to the extent that as a scientist himself, he must have known, I think, uh, this is my interpretation, not Chomsky's, but he must have known that he was, to a certain extent, purveying charlatanism. And I think that may be an interesting way of looking at the the, the Fraser character in Walden 2, who ultimately does admit to a sort of god complex, which again is that kind of low-hanging fruit in the criticism tree that we could uh, obviously attack. Uh, well, look, the man who's trying to plan the system is clearly uh, a god-complex type of uh, crazy man. So, I mean, this is why th- this this community is is doomed to fail at some point. Um, but again, I think that's, that's, that's not the most effective criticism we can bring. Okay, so... As you read through Chomsky's article, you will see the, the ways in which Skinner's behavioral science is not really science at all. And that brings us to the more fundamental point for myself, which is more of the ethical point. And this revolves around those concepts that we've been talking about, or at least alluding to, in which what matters is not the way that people understand or process or reason about uh, the, about facts that are presented to them, the, the the reasons that they come up with to justify their behaviors or, or why they refuse to behave in a certain way at a certain time. None of that matters from the Skinnerian model. What matters is the actual behavior itself. And, of course, the behavior can be explained completely through environmental conditions and, and to a certain extent, genetic endowment. Uh, Skinner made some sort of allowance for genetics uh, within his uh, rubric, but but it's not exactly clear to what extent he really took that on board. But at any rate, um, these are all of these concepts that float around and that lead to these very interesting terms, including a term that I believe was coined in Walden 2, or at the very least was certainly very new to the uh, the general reading public in Walden 2, which is behavioral engineering. As Chomsky notes, this becomes a problem of engineering if it is simply a matter of controlling the environment and and creating certain stimulus through certain techniques in order to create certain types of behavior, then it really is just an engineering problem to create one's perfect society. And it's at this point I'd like to return to that question that we, we pondered at the beginning of the podcast, because I think it is an important one, and I think there is an answer that we can give to it. Once again, reading from that passage that, again, is at the beginning of chapter 14. Considering how long society has been at it, you'd expect a better job. But the campaigns have been badly planned and the victory has never been secure. The behavior of the individual has never has been shaped according to revelations of good conduct, never as the result of experimental study. But why not experiment? The questions are simple enough. What's the best behavior for the individual so far as the group is concerned? And how can the individual be induced to behave in that way? Why not explore these questions in a scientific spirit? End quote. Well, I think my response to this would at least start by saying that within the terms that Skinner sets out and within his own framework for understanding uh, human behavior, we can never, ever 
ever come to some sort of scientific or objective understanding of the best types of behavior to get people to fit into society. There are so many vague terms in, in a, a, a project like that that it's difficult to even know where to begin trying to delimit and define them. Who gets to decide what what size a society should be, how many people, what types of people should be included in that society, and wh what types of people should be included in a different type of society, how those people relate to each other, and what constitutes good behavior in terms of creating a healthy society. What is a healthy society? Is merely a long-lasting society a healthy society? Then why shouldn't we have all been in favor of the Thousand-Year Reich? If, that's a, if that worked, and if that was a long-lasting society, would that make it good? Well, uh, presumably not. Then what does make a society good? The fact that people are happy? Well, there are a number of times in the book itself that Skinner points out that happiness is not the ultimate underlying goal of this because, well, as Skinner says in some of his interviews that you can watch online, he says things like, well, it's easy to create a happy society simply by giving everyone allowance of, uh, of alcohol and drugs and, and allowing them to simply be drunk and stoned for most of their lives. They can perfectly be, or a lot of people can achieve some sort of happiness out of that um, on some level, um, but that doesn't, of course, not create a very uh, a productive society or a very interesting society. So again, the question of the values that we place on different types of society and what types of behaviors are then necessary to create that society and function within it are all sorts of value judgments that have nothing to do and, and, and for which the uh, Skinner scientific process has nothing to say about. So that in itself is a type of aporia at the very heart of this project, which I think would need a, a serious answer from the Skinnerians and which I don't think they are capable of forming within their own rubric, within their own standard. But it also brings up a, a, another ethical point about this idea of engineering better humans, engineering behavior. Well, what's it, why not control people's environments and can try to induce certain types of behavior? Because otherwise, you're just leaving it to chance. Either way, humans are determined. They are basically the clockwork orange. They are these just mechanistic beings. They are not really... Uh, individuals. They, they have no meaning in and of themselves. Their interior mental lives mean nothing. The only thing that matters is their behavior and the way that produces a a good society or a bad society, a well-tuned society or a, a malfunctioning society. However, again, however you want to define that, and again, that's something that cannot be defined from within the Skinnerian system. But as Chomsky goes on to point out, for example, isn't it a happy happy accident, I guess, for the Skinnerians, who, whose fundamental view is, well, nature is what it is, and we simply have to study it, learn from it, and then try to control um, the, 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 the sort of the conditions that lead to this or that result. Isn't it a happy accident for the Skinnerians that, according to Skinner's theory, it was the positive reinforcements that created the most effective ways of shaping human behavior, um, as opposed to the aversive reinforcements? That is to say, it isn't punishment that tends to induce people to act in certain ways, although it does have a certain type of effect for short periods of time, an easily identifiable effect, but it, it isn't the best way to shape people's behavior. The best way is, in fact, to use positive reinforcements and rewards. Well, that's a happy accident for the Skinnerians, because then they, they get out of the problem of what would happen if it could be proven that the best way to shape people's behavior, the best way to make them act in a certain way, was simply to torture them. If the best way to get uh, one of these clockwork oranges to act in the way you want it to act was to torture it to nearly the point of death, and then it will do whatever you want it to do, then 
what what way would Skinner argue against that? He has already said that nature is what it is, and we all the point of what he's doing is to try to find the best techniques to control that behavior. Well, if the best technique is torture or whatever, then you have no ethical argument against it because ethics don't matter in the slightest. The internal mental life, the experience of the human beings that we are talking about here mean nothing. The only thing that matters is the behavior at the end. And Chomsky creates an idea of a society which could function very well and last a very long time by not the actual application of violence even, not even an actual on-the-boots-on-the-ground tyranny, but merely the, the implication of the threat of violence. The idea that, you know, there's this, this sort of smokestacks in the background of this kind of big open-air concentration camp society where there's a lot of threats and, and implied threats of violence, but violence doesn't ever have to actually be used in this society. The threats, etc., might be coercive enough to get people to behave in a certain way. And if they do, well then, hey, that's mission accomplished, according to the Skinnerians. All we want is to engineer the right behaviors, and whatever methods are used to get there are A-OK. And it just so happens, happily enough for the Skinnerians, that it's the positive, nice, fuzzy-feely, you know, rewards and tokens and things that, that make people act in certain ways, so we can use that. But again, what if it was torture? What if it was just the implication, the threat of torture would, would more effectively engineer people's behavior? Again, there would be no ethical argument to be made from the Skinnerians on those grounds. Uh, again, this is an exceptionally profoundly important point because this goes to the heart of my uncomfort, uh, discomfort with with all of these types of managed, planned societies like Island, like Walden Two, where where it's very difficult to argue from within the framework that's presented in these books. Because of course, I mean, I, again, Skinner was not a, a, a stupid man; he knew to make. Professor Castle be the, the kind of foil for Fraser so that he could put the words of the opposition in the mouth of, uh, of the, basically in the minds of the reader so that you feel that Castle is your voice in arguing against Fraser. And you go in with all those arguments and Fraser defeats all those arguments one by one. And thus, you, well, you have nothing to say then once all of those arguments are defeated. But it's the underlying ethical points that are, are excluded from this that I think are the important point of this. And I think, again, it's interesting to look at. It's interesting to think about. And the fact that behavioral conditioning, I mean, it does exist and there, it is effective to a certain extent. But does it actually explain the motivations for human behavior itself? Does it explain where certain types of human behavior arise from? Does it explain uh, and does it adequately account for the actual lived experience that we have as human beings and the fact that we are conscious agents, and we should be treated as ends in ourselves, not as means to creating a type of society. And that, my friends, is where I 100% completely uh, cleave from the utopians who want to create this type of society at any cost. I say not at any cost. I say we must respect the human freedom and dignity, which really does exist. That is not a mental illusion, as Skinner and, and uh, others would argue, but is an actual vital part of our lived experience and explains why, for example, some people will go to their deaths to defend their ideas and ideals rather than simply complying. And what does that say about human behavior? 
All right, friends, that is going to do it for this month. B.F. Skinner's Walden 2. Again, I think it's an interesting book to read, and it is in that utopian tradition. Uh, there was no actual uh, conspiracy to present another utopian society so soon after we read Aldous Huxley's uh, Island, but uh, there you go. It just happened to exist that way. All right, um, well, uh, that's going to do it for this month, and so we will wrap up, as always, by taking a look at some feedback uh, regarding last month's edition of this uh, podcast, where we we talked to uh, Pierce uh, Redmond of Porkins Policy Review about uh, Charlie Wilson's war, and we had this in from Ruth, who writes, It's interesting that Gulbuddin Hekmadiar received most of the CIA's money during the Afghan-Soviet conflict via the ISI, and they are the same people that held Bergdahl for five years. Not to mention that Hekmadiar is one of the founding mem- members of the Haqqani Network, a brutal gangster uh, of insurgents that kills Americans every day. Okay, thank you for that, Ruth. That is an important point. And as I said in that uh, that previous edition of this podcast, I didn't know off the top of my head whether Hekmadiar was still alive, but he is. And you can go and read about him, well, on the Bastion of Truthius uh, Wikipedia for starts. But of course, there's a lot more information about him out there, and I suggest you take a look at it. And also, uh, we had a, a, a very detailed, in fact, two-part email in from Philip, who was writing about this month's book in advance. He was writing about his reactions to Walden 2, and he had uh, a lot to say about... Um, uh, about this book, so I won't go through it all. But, um, but uh, for example, on the idea of the name of Fraser, uh, Fraser being chosen as the name of the the founder of this Walden Two community. Uh, sorry, a uh, castle. Uh, the name of uh, of Burris's uh, colleague in this book. Uh, Philip writes. I think this name was ap- deliberate was deliberately chosen. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word castle? For me, I conjure up a large, ancient, probably crumbling edifice. Castle as the cardboard cutout of an opponent to Fraser represents traditional ways of thinking that Fraser finds outmoded. Um, and he goes on to talk about Fraser. Along the way, I noted these concepts were put forward by Fraser: Malthusianism, a reference to the French Revolution, indicating perhaps some inspiration from Rousseau, an anarchist view of government, no heroes are allowed, no study of history, human behavior must be controlled, block voting in elections, a recognition of the similarity between the two main political parties, democracy is dictatorship, uh, four problems with Russia, uh, the Russian communist experiment. Uh, Fraser had a spot referred to as the throne, and he had a serious god complex, which was discussed. Uh, etc etc so Philip again thank you very much for that detailed analysis that you brought in about that book in advance of our study of it I do appreciate that and of course I always do look forward to hearing your own thoughts what do you think about Walden 2 what do you think about this idea of the utopian community what do you think about that Chomsky article that's linked up in the show notes for this I think it's an absolutely outstanding uh, critique of Skinner and the flaws in his so-called behavioral science and uh, so uh, if you want to get in your own thoughts, of course, you can contact me through the contact form at CorbettReport.com. Or, of course, now Corbett Report members who do make the website possible can sign in to the website and leave their comments on this post right there on the website. And I'll be happy to read through them at the end of next month's episode. And next month, in preparation, as always, I will announce what we are going to be studying so that you can get on it and be prepared in advance. Next month, we are going to be talking about They Live... They Live, the Hollywood movie that, uh, well, a very, very interesting movie and uh, and a lot to say about that one. So I hope you will be prepared for that. The link, of course, to uh, to find out more about that movie will be in the show notes, as always. 
that's going to do it for this uh, this month. Uh, we've gone way too long today, but a lot to talk about. So perhaps that's a sign of a good conversation. At any rate, we will leave it there for now. And as I say, uh, media will continue and uh, sp- spewing forth from the Corbett Report feeds in the coming days and weeks as I get back online with my regular weekly podcasts and productions. So thank you again for your patience during the summer hiatus. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon.